Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. It was around this date in the year 70 AD, around late summer, that the beautiful and magnificent temple in Jerusalem was burnt down and destroyed, along with the entire city of Jerusalem by Roman forces. 100,000 Jews were slaughtered in that event. Jesus predicted this would happen, and that's what our gospel lesson was all about. And it's this reason that this lesson is read every year on this, the 10th Sunday after Trinity. We commemorate it and we read it again, not just because it was a horrible tragedy, and it was, like we do, for instance, uh, with something like 9-11. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, however, is really what the church has considered to be the inauguration of the end of the world, the last days. And I know that the mere mention of the end of the world spurs up a whole bunch of crazy images of chaos and confusion and destruction. Of course, turning on the news does that too. But these things have been happening for, uh, since the destruction of the temple, and that's the point. These things have always been happening. We shouldn't look for extra, extraordinary things to try to pinpoint the end. Rather, the destruction of the temple is meant to be a call for us to renew our obedience and to look to Christ in faith because for unbelievers, for those who reject Jesus, the the judgment they will face at the end of the world will be worse, infinitely worse, than the judgment faced by the Jews at the horrible destruction of Jerusalem, which itself was so bad that later generations could hardly bear to speak of it. Sadly, however, many today think that the end of the world is a mere metaphor, a story invented to keep people in line. This is why Jesus weeps, not only for those in Jerusalem who rejected him, but for all people who would reject him. And think about that. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's for the very last time in his mission as Messiah. In five days, he will be crucified. He has come to die for the sins of the entire world, for every single person. But he's not thinking about his end, but about the end of all things. He's not concerned about what happens to him, but about what happens to us. Jesus knows that we as the church will have many trials and temptations before he returns to call us home. There are many things that that vie to steal us from the faith. And this is the question that St. Paul wrestles with in our epistle lesson in 1 Corinthians. How do we live as the church, the bride of Christ, until that day comes? Because St. Paul admits, life is hard. And we as the church are faced with many trials and temptations. St. Paul uses the image of the body, and this is not a mere metaphor. Paul is describing reality. We are the body of Christ. 
in the same way as when a husband and wife are united in marriage, they become one flesh, one body. We are one flesh with Jesus. He is the head. We, as many members, make up the different parts of the body. And Paul describes the different gifts given to each member of the body. And in general, this applies to all Christians, but in particular, here in 1 Corinthians, it describes the gifts given to ministers, to those publicly called to do ministry in the church. The Corinthians, and, and this is what we'll look at for Bible study later this morning, were dividing themselves over which preachers they liked better. They were evaluating the men based on the gifts that they were given, boasting they had been baptized or brought into church by one or the other, rather than viewing the preachers as men sent by God with various gifts given for the, the benefit and the building up of the church. And so they were dividing themselves into camps over different preachers. So St. Paul invokes the unity of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, but in reverse order. He says there are various kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are various kinds of service, and yet the same Lord. There are various kinds of activity, but the same God, who produces all of them in everyone. Paul's argument is just that there, as there are three persons of the Trinity, and they are not divided, but united as one, so also the ministry is various, but not divided. God uses different people to do different things in one church. And every member makes up one body. This is Paul's entire thesis in 1 Corinthians. That the church is the body of Christ. And the services that are performed in the body of Christ are done by God himself through the Holy Spirit working in each individual member. So what does this mean? When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, it meant the end of the sacrifices and services of the priests at the temple. These are no longer needed. They were obsolete because they had been fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember when Jesus died before he died, he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body. And in his resurrection, Jesus established the new temple, a temple built without hands, his body, the holy Christian church. Jesus is the church's one foundation. That means that you and I, as members of the body of Christ, are, as Paul says, God's temple. Now, it's common today to hear the cliche, the church isn't a building, it's the people. I think it's an unhelpful distinction at best, an untrue, or, or half untrue at worst, <clears throat> because it, it, it tends to or many tend to use it to justify uh, that it doesn't matter what you believe or do, and, and that it tends to keep Christians separated and divided, which, of course, is exactly what Paul is speaking against. And, and when we think about being the body of Christ today, it, it's all too common uh, and easy for us to think of the church's unity in mere social or, or symbolic terms as a mere metaphor. 
And so we speak of our, our being the hands and feet of Jesus as if Jesus doesn't actually have any. <clears throat> Rather, when Paul says that you and I are the body of Christ, it's something so much more profound and meaningful than a half-true cliché. The church, as the body of Christ, means that it has died and risen, and nothing can harm it any longer. It means its life is sustained by the very blood of Christ being delivered to us as a branch receives its life from the vine. It means that we survive in this world filled with trials and temptations. We live until the Lord returns by eating and drinking from Christ himself. As St. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The end of the world is not a metaphor. The church as the body of Christ is not a metaphor. And the Lord's Supper is not a metaphor. This is how the church is to operate amidst trials and temptations, by relying on the gifts of the Spirit. Paul is directing the Corinthian Christians and us away from enthusiasm for what seems extraordinary and supernatural because we naturally are drawn to these things, things like speaking in tongues, visible signs and wonders, people claiming to have glimpses of heaven, and to look rather at what seems mundane and ordinary, the work of ministers in the church word, and sacrament. Because what's hidden here is actually extraordinary and actually supernatural and most of all, gracious. The body and blood of Christ crucified and shed to sustain you. This has immense application for us today. How do we abide in this world amidst toil and trouble trial and tribulation, we go to church. We listen. We repent. We receive absolution. And we're sustained by the body and blood of Jesus. The church is always at her most effective, always at her best, when she is focused on the good news and primarily hearing the good news. The good news of the Christian church is no uh, mute idol, as Paul says. Rather, it's the actual words and promises of the living God. A living God who speaks real things, real forgiveness, real hope, real life. The good news transcends time. It transcends place. It reveals the glory of, the God, of God when the dead are raised in one baptism, when we drink of one spirit, when people who have no relation to each other are united into one family through the one holy communion. This is how the church, if it's going to solve any problems at all in our world, does it. It comes together around God's means of grace. It lives as the one body of Christ. And here, there is no division. 
and it will not be destroyed. No earthly power, no army like that of Rome, not even the forces of hell itself can prevail against Christ's church because the church is the body of Christ, the greater temple. Let me close this morning by reading two verses of the hymn we'll sing later today, later this morning, the church's one foundation. This is verse 2 and 5. Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. When holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.